Good morning again. Those of you that are watching online, we appreciate that you're with us today. The digital bulletin would especially be helpful for you because you can follow along if you can't see what's going on in the screen or what's happening here in the church sanctuary. And that is faithlife.com slash Dunkirk Baptist. I feel like I'm doing a commercial every time I say that. We're not sponsored by Faith Life, but it's a good tool that we can use for a lot of things at church. We're continuing our Rediscover Church series, and it's based on this book. How many of you have a copy of this book with you or at home or somewhere near you? It's by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman, and it's why the body of Christ is essential. In these past couple of years, as COVID has separated people and kept people at home, a lot of people have not returned to church. And I'm glad you have. I'm glad you're here with us this morning. And those of you that are watching online, I hope you will be with us again soon because the body of, church, of believers coming together is something special. There's something unique about that. This isn't a social club. It's not a gathering of people just to say hi and then go about our week. This is the church that Christ established. And so we're talking about nine different questions in relation to that, and we're going to answer one each week. You can pick up a copy of this book at the welcome table, or you could come to one of the growth groups, and we have copies of it there as well. Uh, in fact, tonight, as we go to the Davises, we'll be talking a little bit more about today's message. So if there are questions that you had about it or things that you want to discuss further, perfect time to come out and be part of a growth group. So far, we've answered four questions. John, are you with me? What is church? Who can belong? Why gather? Why are preaching and teaching central? And last week, is membership really necessary? You can find those messages on our website, also on YouTube, so you can go back and watch them. But we're going to read those answers one at a time. What is church? Read this with me. A group of people who know they are loved by Christ and have begun loving one another that way. Who can belong? Believers who have been baptized. Why do we gather? There is strength and growth when church members physically gather together. Why are preaching and teaching central? God's word is our authority for life and church. And last week's question, is membership really necessary? Yes, church membership is seen in the New Testament. And joining says, this is the group of believers I want to care for and to be cared for. Look around the room. Is this the group of believers that you're caring for? And are you welcoming them to care for you? So today's question is, is discipline really loving? We don't usually like the word discipline because it sounds like something hard is coming. It sounds like I'm getting in trouble for something. Or if you're in the military, uh, like my son's brother-in-law who just completed Marine boot camp, discipline is hard. It means doing hard things and making sure that other people are doing what they're supposed to do, right? That's the whole purpose of boot camp. The drill instructors are saying, you need to do this. You need to be prepared. And they drill it into the cadets, making sure they're ready to do what they need to do. 
So discipline sometimes sounds hard. It sounds like something we don't want to welcome. And the question is, if the church does it, is church discipline really loving? It comes from the word disciple. And the word disciple means to teach or to correct. So as Christ said, go make disciples in all the world, he said, go teach people. But it also includes correcting them when they're wrong. Imagine a teacher who only encouraged you when you were in class. So that if you answered 2 plus 2 equals 5, you got a red check mark and a little smiley face. Good job. Way to go. You tried. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. And then you'd go through the rest of life not knowing that 2 plus 2 actually equals... You, you sound like you're not quite sure. <laughs> I know that truth is kind of gray today, but 2 plus 2 still equals 4. There's a lot of things that are still true no matter what we think. And no matter how hard a student may argue that their answer is a reasonable one, there are right answers. So a teacher needs to tell you when you've done something wrong. A driving instructor who never points out the speed limit or never says, when you see a red light, you need to stop. Imagine about how the rest of your driving experience would have gone through life if you just ignored speed limits and you never stopped at a red light. I heard someone once say that the red stop signs that had the white border, those were optional ones, so you could skip those if you wanted to. That's not a good idea. We need to know when we're doing something wrong. We need to be corrected. And becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ meant learning what he taught, learning what were the right things to do, how to treat people, how to love people, how to care for people, but also when we do something wrong. What's wrong? What should I not do? I need to know that. And if you've had children or you've been near children, they're often asking you to correct them. Sometimes they, they do it in what they think is a funny way, like your little one in the high chair who looks at their cup and does this, and you say, no, no, don't do that, and you pick it up and you put it back, and they smile, and they look at you, and they do this again. Are they testing gravity? No, they're testing your will to see if you're going to actually back up what you say. This is the wrong thing to do. Don't do that. We need to be taught. We need to be discipled, but we also need to be corrected and disciplined. So we're left with the question, is it really loving? Is discipline loving? We're going to look into God's Word and we're going to see three things. First of all, God's holy love. We're going to see that it's a biblical process and we're going to see the goal. If you like taking notes, then you'll find a note sheet in the bulletin. If you're online, you can find a lot of the notes there online, and you can follow along there as well. Let's pray before we read God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for the church, for Christ establishing that and asking his disciples to go into all the world preaching the gospel discipling people and creating churches all around the world. We thank you that we can gather here this morning to learn more about you, to worship you, to lift up your name in praise, to remember Christ's sacrifice in communion, 
and to lovingly encourage and correct one another, to have a body of believers around us who care about us, who love us enough to correct us. I just pray, Lord, that you'd give us ears that would hear, give us hearts that would be ready to hear your word and obey it, and help us to be ready to change our minds if there are things that we are thinking that are not correct according to your word. I just thank you, Lord, for all these things, and thank you for your word, which corrects us and teaches us. In Christ's name, amen. A big part of the question is, is church discipline loving? Is, is God loving? What's holy love? And what does that really look like? First of all, God is holy, and his love is holy. That means it's set apart. It's different. It's other. We think about the word holy, and sometimes we, we picture a light streaming down on one of the apostles, and we just think, oh, that person was holy. They were perfect. But the word holy really means set apart, set apart for God. So what does that look like? God's holy love requires that he identify and exclude sin from his presence. His holiness, his otherness meant that he's perfect and we are not. That he is righteous. He always does what is right, what is true, what is loving. But we don't. So part of that holiness is that he identifies sin and he then excludes it. He sets it apart. When Adam and Eve sinned there in the garden, he excluded them from the garden. And he put an angel there, not just to keep them out, but to protect them, saying, you can't go back there anymore. This is a place that was set apart to be in perfect communion with me, and you're no longer able to do that. When the world became so wicked, he excluded the fallen people from Noah's Ark. They were excluded from salvation. God said, here is a righteous man. And Noah and his family went onto the ark, and they were saved. But the rest of the world was not. He excluded the sinful Canaanite people, the, the people all around the promised land. And God sent his people Israel and said, this is the land you're going to have, and I'm going to exclude all of those other people, the people who are not worshiping me, that are not true to me, the people that are sinning. And then when his own people, Israel, continued in sin, they turned to idols. They followed in the ways of the lands around them. He excluded them from the promised land. They were captured. They were taken away. They would confess. They would come back to God and they would be restored. And then it would happen again and again. And finally, he said, you're excluded from this land. And it's not until I'm ready to come back that you're going to go back to the land. And that's one of the signs that we see as Israel is a nation again in the last part of the last century, that it's getting closer. It's still been 2,000 years, but it's getting closer. There are, there are people with a land, and God was bringing them back, and he will return. The Messiah will come back again for his people and will eventually restore everything. We're looking forward to that day. Then on the very last day, God promises to exclude all those whose faith does not rest in Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death on the cross. And God is going to exclude those who don't trust Jesus as Savior from eternal life with him, from heaven. Again, this is loving. He's excluding them from 
his love because they have chosen to not accept Christ as, de- as Savior. The flip side of identifying and excluding sin is that God simultaneously is drawing people to himself, refashioning them into his image, redeeming them, saving them, forgiving them, and saying, this is the way it's supposed to work. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Confess your sins, and I will forgive you. Trust in Jesus, and you will be saved. So while God says, this is sin, this is what you need to stay away from, come to me and I'll get rid of that. Those are the two sides of God's love. His love excludes sin, but it also welcomes the sinner who is repentant and says, I need you, God. I need your salvation. When he refashions people into his image, he can display his holy love to all the nations. Listen to Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. Just as the water covers over the land, so God's glory will cover over the entire world as people see him and bring him glory. As God's forgiven and redeemed image bearers are filled with his Holy Spirit, they can display his loving, godly, holy, righteous image across the globe. That's what we're called to do as believers. As we gather together in assemblies called church, we're like cities on a hill. We're like embassies of God's heavenly kingdom here on earth. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul said, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you to not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The church brings God's wisdom into all the world, and it shows rulers and authorities those in heavenly places. And down, down in verse 18, you, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's not just knowing about God and his blessings, his wisdom. It's knowing his love that goes even far beyond knowledge. The passage in Hebrews chapter 12 that we read together this morning talks about how godly discipline is loving. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. Just as your earthly fathers provided discipline and corrected you, God as our heavenly father wants to provide that kind of loving discipline. And he says, yes, your earthly fathers didn't always do it right, Sometimes they did it in anger. Sometimes they did it in frustration. But God, our Heavenly Father, corrects us perfectly in love because he's always thinking, how can I help this son or daughter become more like my son? I need to show them what they're doing is wrong. I need to correct them. And that correction sometimes hurts. It hurts our pride because we're being told we're doing the wrong thing. Sometimes it hurts just because we have to stop doing what we were enjoying. 
and give something up and saying, I'm going to follow you, God. Your discipline is welcome. That correction shows his love so that we can share in his holiness. When believers in the church love each other the way God loves them, then we will teach and correct each other in love. Church members will identify sin and exclude it from the body. But there's a very clear and loving way of doing this that's presented in God's word. And there's a very clear goal. I'll give you a hint. It's not punishment. The goal of God's discipline in the church is not punishing people. God's love is not only unconditional, but its desire is always for the other person's good, that they would know and glorify God. As parents, as Christian parents, that's our goal in discipline. It's not just that your son or daughter would feel bad about what they did, that they would go sit in a corner for a while. It's that they would know God's holiness, that they would know his righteousness, and know that that's what we're calling them to, to be obedient to our parents, just as we're called to be obedient to our Heavenly Father. So as Christian parents and as grandparents, when you correct your children or your grandchildren, even in our Christian school, when we correct children's wrong behavior, it needs to be so that they would see the right way to live, that they would see a life that is pleasing to God, not just doing absolutely everything we say and always doing it our way, but doing it God's way. So that's our call. Thankfully, God gives us a biblical process. We find the process of how to disciple. I just threw my remote on the floor, John, and the batteries are all over the place, so I'm going to need you to click for me. I should have brought something else as an example. I didn't want to throw my water all over the floor. That would have been a bad example for all the little ones in high chairs that are watching. Hi, kids. <clears throat> so our biblical examples come in two places specifically. There's a lot of places where it tells us how to love each other. So we can draw on places like Ephesians chapter 4, speak the truth in love. There's so many places like that. But Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 are the main texts. We're going to look at each one of those briefly. Let's start with Matthew 18, 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Context is always important when we're reading God's word. So why does Jesus all of a sudden start talking about church discipline? There isn't even a church yet. Do you realize that? He's speaking to people who only know 
a synagogue, a tabernacle, a temple. And he's talking about how to discipline someone in the church. He's speaking to us through his word. So as we look at this context, if you back up to the section just before these verses in your Bible, what's the heading for verses 10 to 14? What's the heading in your Bible? Anybody there? The parable of the lost sheep. That's a good one, Dan. I like that parable. What is God telling us about in the parable of the lost sheep? If you were listening when Dan preached about that, it's about God's amazing love and how he's going to leave 99 to go find the one that has strayed. The one that has walked away. God doesn't say, you know what? I've had enough of you. You've wandered away one time too many. I'm just going to let you go on your way this time. God says, like a shepherd caring for every sheep, he's going to leave the 99 and say, you stay here. I'm going to go find that lost one because I love him. I love her. I'm not mad at her. I'm not disappointed in her. I'm saddened because once again, she's left the safety of the flock. She's left the comfort of me caring for her and wandered off. And then Jesus says, and this is what you do when someone has offended you, when someone has sinned against you. You start small. You go to that brother. You go to that sister who has sinned against you. And you recognize that you too are a sinner. You too have done things wrong. And you humbly go and say, this is what you did to me, or this is what I saw you do. This is sin. This is something serious that needs to be changed. And hopefully, that's going to resolve the situation right there. Just between the two of you, nobody else even needs to know about it. You haven't gossiped to everyone else. You haven't said, pray for me because I'm going to go confront this person. That's... Christian gossip, right? Telling other people about something that you can just go directly. Talk to that person about the situation. And hopefully, they will humbly receive it. And your relationship is going to be even stronger as a result because you've helped them through a trial. That's discipleship. One-on-one, helping each other grow. If he or she doesn't listen, then you involve two or three others to confirm the facts. And that two or three witnesses shows up over and over again in the Bible. It's the way God says that you should judge cases in court. You have to have two or three witnesses who have also seen something happen or recognize that this is the truth. So now you involve a couple more people and you bring them to that person and you say, this is what happened. And you give that person a chance to answer and say, well, this is, this is how it happened for me. This is what I saw happening. This is why I did or said what I did. And those two or three other people together give you wisdom to hear kind of both sides of the story and say, okay, brother or sister, what you did was wrong and you need to fix that. If they still won't listen, now it's a matter for the whole church to hear. The pastors and the deacons would get involved in the process. They would hear the story, hear the situation, And again, provide biblical counsel, godly wisdom to say, yes, this is something that should be taken care of. Or 
wow, we were totally wrong about this. What you said was totally right. We just didn't know all the facts. That's the reason that it keeps escalating, to make sure that you're doing the right thing. If there's still no repentance, still no change, then the church votes and says, you're no longer a member here. You're no longer willing to listen to our care, to our guidance, to our direction. And we're going to have to ask you to stop voting, to stop being a member of the church. We have the example, just like we saw a couple weeks ago, that the church has the authority to bind or loose things as they are here on earth, as they are in heaven. And that's the example, again, that this is about church membership. We're confirming as a church that this person is a believer and that they're continuing to act and grow as a believer. Or in this case, to say, this person has stopped acting like a believer. They're not listening to a biblical counsel. They're not willing to listen to correction. So membership is over. Doesn't mean this person's no longer a believer. It doesn't mean you don't love them or care for them. It doesn't mean they're not welcome to continue to come out to church, but their membership has been withdrawn so that they have time to think about this and say, wow, if this entire body of people agree that what I'm doing is wrong, is it possible that I could be wrong? Have you ever had that moment where you've, enough people have said what you're doing is wrong that you finally realize, yeah, I guess I'm being an idiot. I'm being proud. I'm thinking that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. The whole world is wrong, but I'm right. How often do I do that? Probably too often. That's what the church comes together and says, we want to help you. We want to correct you. The hope is that after time, this person is going to repent and seek to join the church again. I'd like to be part of the fellowship, part of the membership again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see another example And this one is even more severe. Paul instructs the church how to deal with an unrepentant member. But he also lets us see the purposes of church discipline. Listen to 1 Corinthians 5, 1-6. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. First of all, in verse 2, no, we don't need that verse. It's a good verse, but it doesn't help today. I included an extra verse, thank you. First of all, in verse 2, we see sin is exposed. Paul says, how can you be letting this happening? This is sin. This is sexual immorality. You're back to the other slide, John. You were in the right place. That, that one, thank you. First of all, sin is exposed. Secondly, there's a warning of greater judgment. You need to take care of this because God is going to judge you even more severely. There's a rescuing of a believer. 
We need you to see that this is serious sin. And there's a protection and a warning of the other members of the church. Don't let this kind of thing just keep happening. Don't ignore sin in the midst of the church. Because that condones it. When we ignore sin, we're saying, that's okay. Is it loving to ignore when your son or daughter blatantly disobey something you've told them to do? You can correct them lovingly. You don't have to punish them harshly. But if they've disobeyed what you've said, you have to address that and say, this is what you did and this is wrong. You can't do that. Other brothers and sisters are watching. Little brothers, older sisters are watching to see if you're really going to do what you say, if this is really a wrong thing to do. And so in the church, as we address sin, we let other people know that, yeah, the, the Bible does say this is wrong and it's not loving to just sweep it under the carpet and ignore it. It's loving to go to that person. And as we saw before, you go first, just you, and say, I heard this is happening. This isn't right. And then it escalates only if the person is not humbly repenting and saying, yeah, I need to fix this. Finally, it preserves the church's witness to the community. In verse 1, it says it's actually reported. People are talking about this. Oh, the church in Corinth? Yeah, that's the one where anything goes. Would you want that to be said of our church? This is the church where anything goes. People can do whatever they want. They talk about God on Sundays, but that's not the way they live. They do anything they want. Discipline protects and warns other members. It keeps them from the influence or the disguise of dangerous sin. And it tells the world that sin is wrong and that it's something that needs to be dealt with. The process, the purpose of discipline is confronting sin and helping to restore the person. Even though this is really strong language, you're delivering this person to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that his spirit may be saved. Yes, when you bring out this problem and everybody knows about it, they're going to be hurting. They're going to feel pain. They're going to be embarrassed. They may lose friendships over this, but it may help save his or her soul. If this person questions, well, if sin doesn't matter to me, am I really a believer? Have I really trusted Jesus as my Savior, and do I really want to obey him? Or is this just something nice I do on Sundays and I feel good about it, but don't tell me how to live my life? God's Word does that, and the church is here to help teach and correct when we don't do it. The goal of discipleship is teaching and correcting in love. It's meant to be happening throughout the life of the church. Individuals who know and care for each other. And only when sin is ignored or excused or unrepented does the process move up to more people and then eventually to a church-level discussion. What's supposed to be happening is just as we go about our normal days, we interact with each other, we know each other, and we're lovingly pointing out things in each other's lives. Hey, the way you talked to that waitress, was that was really kind of demeaning. 
Wow, I didn't even hear the way that came out of my mouth, but you're right. Thank you for telling me that. That's love. Wouldn't you want someone to tell you? If you're coming across harsh or you're coming across prideful or you're just doing something totally wrong that you didn't even realize that you hurt someone or you did something. That's what we're supposed to do. So the goal in all of this, not punishment, but restoration. Love is on full display through this whole process. And the goal is to see individuals repent of their sin and be restored. The goal is not kicking someone out of church, just as God's goal in holiness is not sending people to hell. God's perfect holy standard is not, I want to send everyone to hell, it's, I want everyone to come to me for forgiveness. I want them to be remade, to be restored, to be reconciled. Second Peter 3.9, it says, God desires that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And John tells us that God is love, and that our love for him leads us to obedience. That's what love looks like. Love means obeying God. So when we love people, we share the gospel with them. They can know and love God too. When we love people, we teach them what God's word says, what it commands so that they can obey him. They can bring him glory in everything they do. When we love people, we correct them when they're walking away from God, when they're relationship with God is getting weaker and weaker when they don't want to come to church anymore because they feel convicted, when they don't want to be around other believers because they feel wrong. That's when we say, come with me, come sit with me, be here with me. We walk through life with each other. We rejoice when we're rejoicing and we mourn when we're mourning. We teach and we correct because we love people. And in love, we remove people from membership so that they can see that they have been walking away from God. They've walked away from the teaching of the faith. They've walked away from obedience. And now they're physically no longer a member so that they can see what it looks like to be cut off from the church, to be cut off from God and say, I need to do something. Something needs to change. God, forgive me. Restore your spirit within me. We love people and we want to see them restored. This is not the job of pastors and deacons. We talk about church discipline, but really it's discipleship. It's really member discipline. It's loving each other and being willing to care for each other's souls. It's love for the sinner's sake, helping lead someone to repentance. It's love for other church members' sake, protecting them from being pulled in by sin, by being blinded to something and just thinking, oh, this is innocent, it's not going to hurt me, and we see it hurting them. It's love for the community, drawing them to God instead of them seeing hypocrisy and worldliness in the church. And finally, it is love for God. It's displaying His holiness and bringing Him glory in everything that we do. If you've never 
confessed your sin to God. If you're saying, how could somebody else tell me I'm wrong before God? That's what God calls us to do. He calls us to share the gospel. There's good news in the gospel, but there's also bad news. The good news is God loves you. He created you. He wants you to have a relationship with him. But the bad news is our sin separates us from God. And nothing we can do can fix that. My good works, my good actions, no matter how much money I gave away or how much time I spent doing things for other people, none of that compares to God's holiness. He said the only way that you can be right with me was the ultimate sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. If we could be saved by our good works, why did Jesus have to die? If I could be saved by just trying to be a good person and hoping God will let me in, then why would he send his son to suffer and be tortured and killed on a cross? Why would he do that? If I could just do it by thinking happy thoughts or just feeling good about myself. Sin is serious, and it takes a serious Savior. It takes the blood of Jesus Christ. If you've never accepted him alone by faith as your Savior, then please make today the day you would do it. And then all this crazy talk about talking to other people about their sin and their problems is going to make a little bit more sense. If you just walked up to someone on the street and said, would you like people to correct you? Most people are going to say, nope, I'm fine, thanks, leave me alone, let me do my thing. But when we see the seriousness of sin and we see how quickly it disguises itself and how easily it works its way into our lives, we say, I welcome you to talk into my life, to speak to me and say, here's things that could be godly that you're doing that are not godly. Trusting Jesus Christ, being transformed Matthew said in chapter 28, he was recording Jesus and said, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples who teach God's word, who correct and love and care for each other. That's the gospel. So here are our takeaways for today. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you haven't done that, please come talk to me today. Text me or contact me. If you're watching online, I would love to see you become a son or daughter of our Heavenly Father because He is the one who will lovingly correct you and help you live a life that is honoring to Him. Are you building loving and trusting relationships with others in the church? That's a tough one. Do you know people well enough that... They could come up to you and say, you know, brother, I've seen this happening and it looks like a pattern. Let's talk about it a little bit more. Or to be able to walk up to someone and say, will you point out to me when I'm being rude? Because sometimes I'm just like totally oblivious to it. Would you do that, Jake? If I'm rude to someone, would you tell me? Because sometimes I've got so many things going on, I'll just walk by someone and not even realize that I missed an opportunity to say hi and talk to someone. I want you to be able to tell me that. If I'm not listening closely, if I'm thinking about my next sentence instead of really listening, you can stop and say, did you hear what I just said? 
We've got to have humble hearts to be able to do that, don't we? We have to be able to invite correction, invite people into our lives to have those kind of relationships. Are you the kind of person who listens well and is easy to correct? Or are people afraid? I've been wanting to tell you this, but I was trying to work up the courage to say it. That's not a good sign. That means that you're unapproachable. I'm guilty of that. Being humble and being ready to receive correction. Do you invite people into your life to know you deeper, to invite even critical feedback? If you ask that question with a brother or sister over a cup of coffee, or even better yet, over a piece of cheesecake, when you're enjoying life together and you say, would you tell me when I'm messing up? Would you be willing to do that? Would you be that kind of friend? Because I need friends like that. I don't need people who just pat me on the back and tell me how great I am. I have millions of those already. It's a joke. Would you be willing to be real with me? And can I be real with you? Can we have that kind of relationship? You're not going to have that relationship with everybody in the church. That might be a smaller circle of people that, you, that really know you that well, but being ready to listen. And are you willing to love someone enough to privately go to him or her with a concern? And that's how it should start. I'm concerned about this. I care about you. This is what I'm seeing. Help me understand this. Because if I come in saying, I know this is wrong, I know that's wrong, and I've got two guns blazing, that's not going to be usually welcomed well. It's not going to go well or end well. But if we go in asking questions and lovingly trying to help, it can go well. Is that the last one, John? It is. So this is the sixth in two weeks. We're having an intro class learning more about First Baptist Church, learning more about what it's like to be a member, why we do what we do, what we believe, and would you like to be part of a family of people that care for each other? People who know that they're loved by Jesus Christ and are working on loving each other that way, are beginning to love each other that way. Not perfectly, not standing here saying we've got it all together and we do it right every time, but we're working on it. That's our desire. We want to be that kind of church. So join us on the 20th. Sign up out at the Welcome Center so that we know you're coming and you'll have a nice lunch waiting for you that day. Mark's going to come. We're going to close in a song. We're going to have some coffee. And I hope you'll stay for Sunday school because that's a place where you get to know people a little bit better. Bow with me as Mark comes. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that you are a God who loves us. You're a God who loves us enough to correct us, to tell us what's wrong, to tell us what's going to hurt us, to call us to obedience, to call us to holiness, to call us to live a life that is not only pleasing to you, but a life that brings you glory and looks more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Help me to live that kind of life, Lord. Help us as brothers and sisters encourage each other, teach and correct one another to live lives that honor you and bring glory to your Son. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you.
In the holy and righteous name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.